So I remember when I was, I think it was fifth grade when those, I don't know if you remember those magic eye books. Um, they would look like a random pattern on a page. And if you would stare at it long enough, you could see an object in the middle. But at first, it just it looked all blurry. It looked all confusing. And it would be frustrating because I'd page through that book and I would never be able to see that image. All I would see is just that, that blurriness. Until one day I was paging through and all of a sudden I just started seeing them pretty much at will. There's a special way you had to look at the book. You couldn't just look at it any way you wanted to. There's a certain technique that you had to do. And after a while you could just pick up the book and you could see the hidden image within all of the blurriness. And sometimes when we think of God's will, trying to understand what God's will is, it can have that kind of frustrating sense to us. That yes, we have the Word of God, yes, we have the Bible, but how do we apply it to our lives in the sense where we know what God's will is for our lives? So like the po- <clears throat> random design, it seems random at first. It seems random, it seems confusing, it seems senseless, and it seems like only a small percentage of the people really are able to see that image in those books. And same thing in the Christian community as well. We have the Word of God. We had God speaking to us. But so many times we become confused as to what the will of the Lord is from our own sinful, limited perspective. Now look at Ephesians 5.17. That was the second verse I had us go to. Paul's telling us this here. He's saying, Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you do that? (laughs) What is that? What is the will of the Lord? If somebody were to ask you what is God's will, how would you define it to them? How would you show that to that person from Scripture? How many of us have ever struggled with these questions in life? What is God's will for my life? What occupation does God want me to get involved with? Should we have kids? If so, how many kids? How do I know who I'm supposed to marry? When am I supposed to get married? What church should we go to? We can make a list of all of these questions. And we have sincere desire. We want to be pleasing to God. We want to do His will. But we have confusion over what that is. We're not exactly sure how to come to that. So how do we find out what God's will is in these areas? We believe God is in control of all things. We state that in our confessions. We we understand that. That he brings all things that come to pass. But yet at the same time, we're still able to make choices. We're not robots. We're not forced to do what we do. But everything that comes to pass and everything that we do has been ordained by God. How do we make sense of this? We know God commands us to be perfect, and yet we sin. We act contrary to his will and what he commands. But the Bible teaches from him and through him and to him are all things. So we deal with a concept of our sin and our choices, but then we look at the scripture and it says, from God comes all things. How is this possible? Does God's plan have to frequently be changed, frequently be modified? For instance, God wants A, but man wants C. So God has to settle for B. God's original plan only 
can come to pass if we respond correctly? Or does everything that God has planned come to pass exactly how he ordained it? What we're going to do is we're going to take all of these pieces out of the puzzle box. And we're going to organize these pieces. So if we have a scenic puzzle that we're doing of a mountain, we're going to take all the mountain pieces, put them over here, all of the sky over here, the lake, the field. We're going to separate all of these pieces and we're going to take a look at God's will from Scripture. Three parts. This is the first part tonight. And we're going to see what the Bible has to say in these areas. Understanding what the will of the Lord is. So in order to understand what the will of the Lord is, we have to understand the twofold aspect of God's one will. So God has one will, but there's two aspects to this. The first aspect of his will is God's moral will. Remember Deuteronomy 29:29. The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. God's moral will is the Bible, the 10 commandments. It's how he prescribes us to live. That is God's moral will. It's the do's and the don'ts. That's the first aspect. The second aspect of God's will is God's sovereign will. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Those secret things that God has not revealed to us is what's known as his sovereign will. So we have the one will of God with the two aspects, the moral will and the sovereign will. The sovereign will is what God has ordained from the foundation of the world that must come to pass. So let's focus here on the moral will for a second. What is God's moral will? How do we define it? This aspect of God's will refers to his commands and his desires. How do we know the moral will of God? How do we learn about it? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, for every good work. So God's moral will is what he has revealed to us in his scripture on how we are to live, the do's and the don'ts, how he has prescribed us to live each day. The Bible itself contains God's moral will. God's moral will, it rests in his very nature. Why are we commanded to love? Because God is love. Why are we commanded to worship? Because God is supreme. Why are we told not to murder? Because human beings are created in the image of God. Therefore, each person has value. We're commanded not to take the Lord's name in vain because of his supremacy and who he is. All of morality has its core, has its basis in the character of who God is. We are to live as how God has commanded us to live, to perfectly reflect his character. Now, this is not something that's dry. This is not something that's dull. This is not something that's tedious, that causes us to cringe when we hear or think about the Ten Commandments. I can remember when I was a hospital chaplain, and I'd walk into a, the waiting area, and there may be a family in there who you know, may not have had such a serious reason to be there, but they were there for support, and everybody would be laughing and joking, and I'd walk through the door, and they'd look, and they'd see chaplain, and it just went dead silent. Everybody got real serious. And if anybody would say something that they weren't supposed to or inappropriate, they'd immediately apologize. Just that name chaplain on my name tag just created a connotation that things got serious, no more fun. That's not 
the moral will of God. That's not how we're supposed to view it. Rather, the Lord knows his sheep. We know his voice. We live to do the will of God. We do it from a heart of love, from a heart of gratitude, understanding what he has redeemed us from, understanding the mercy that we receive, not receiving the judgment that we're supposed to. So the law is grace. The law is liberty. We have ambition to do the law and to serve the Lord. It's not something that's dry and tedious that makes us cringe. So the question is, can God's moral will be violated? Can God's moral will be broken? The answer is yes. It happens every single time we sin. We break God's moral will all the time. Remember Jesus in Matthew 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. God wants to bless our obedience to him. But we have choices to make. Are we going to serve God? Are we going to serve our own sinful pleasures? This is the very essence of immorality, choosing to do something contrary to God's moral will. So we understand what God's moral will is. But what do we mean by God's sovereign will? What's the difference? So God's sovereign will defined. This aspect of God's will refers to his working all things according to his perfect eternal plan. So God's sovereign will is everything that he has decreed, must come to pass. This is what we mean when we say, if the Lord wills. Because what we're doing is saying we have future plans. But we're not necessarily sure that those future plans are going to come about because we haven't been there yet. If they come about, we see God has ordained it. If they don't come about, we see God had different plans. This is God's sovereign will. This includes both the good things that happen and also the bad. And this is where it can get kind of troublesome when people are looking at the sovereign will of God. We think the blessings are from God, but the bad things are from Satan or from our sinful nature. Yes, they are, but both of these are encompassed in God's sovereign will. Isaiah 45, 7 says this. God speaking, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God's sovereign will encompasses every single thing that happens every single day, every single second. The reason anything comes to pass at all is because God has ordained it to do so from the beginning. We see this Psalm 33:11 says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Proverbs 16:9 The heart of a man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. So when we understand the two-fold aspect of the one will of God, we can see it in Scripture now. It becomes clear to us. Yes, we make choices, but God is behind the ordination of what we're doing. So the question is, can the sovereign will of God be broken? We saw that the moral aspect can be. But can the sovereign will of God be broken? The answer is no. What God has planned from the beginning must come to pass. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined 
according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has ordained all things that come to pass, therefore it must come to pass. So what do we do when we're reading scripture and we're seeing that God's moral will seems to be contradicting his sovereign will? When God ordains the evil actions of men to come about that are against his Ten Commandments, when people freely sin, breaking the moral will, but God ordained for that action to come about, how do we make sense of this? How God works both aspects together. Understanding this dynamic is the key to understanding the will of God. And I remember years ago I struggled with this. We'll get into that in a little bit with an example, but I just could not wrap my head around how God was sovereign over sin. It just, in my mind, I couldn't make sense of it. Most of the confusion we have understanding the will of God is found right here. In comprehending how man is free and not forced to do what he does, and yet God ordains every single thing we do. God is not to be blamed for the sin that we do. The responsibility is 100% at our feet. So when we think God is sovereign over evil and evil takes place, we're to blame God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we are 100% responsible. We're doing it. God is not coercing us. But then we think, but you are, God ordained it, yes. And this is where it gets confusing because we try to take God and place him in our box. We try to take the concept of what the scripture teaches about the Lord and we try to make sense of it through our own experiences. We forget that we're limited. We forget that we're finite. We forget that we have absolutely very little understanding of how things work. And then when we look at the scripture, we're like, that can't be. It doesn't fit the way I think. And here comes the friction that happens between understanding the dynamic of God's moral will and the sovereign will. Let me give you an example. Is murder a sin? Answer is yes. Does, that, does God command us not to commit murder? Yes, sixth commandment. Murder is sin. What is the greatest sin that humanity ever performed? The greatest sin in human history is crucifying Jesus Christ. But didn't God ordain that event to occur? Didn't God predestine the Jews, the Romans, and Pilate to put Jesus to death? And the answer is yes. Acts 2.23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. But he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So we see these two things coming together the moral will, and the sovereign will. Again in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, For truly in this city there is gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the Jews, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, 
all freely chose to do what they did at the crucifixion. They weren't forced to do it. And yet, at the same time, before the foundation of the world, God had ordained all of those actions to come to pass. And God holds these people 100% responsible for what they've done. The problem of trying to reconcile how God ordains all the actions of men and men being fully responsible, again, is when we try to place God in the box of our human understanding. When we think we know how we do things, and how we do things, we read that back on how God can do things. I don't know how this is possible. The Bible doesn't really get into that, but it just teaches it's, it's a fact. It's the way it is. When we try to fit God in a box that we operate in, when we take how humans break things about, so it's called human and divine causality. How humans bring about causality. We choose to do something. We say to do something. We take action. We do things in a certain way. And then we read that back on God and think, okay, God has to do it this way too, and that's not how it works. And this is where we get confused. Try to make God fit into our paradigm. Understanding that our thinking is the square peg. And God's way of doing things is the round hole. We're never going to figure it out. Not from our perspective. We cannot make sense of it. We don't have the ability to do it. And that's why Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We take them on faith. These are the secret things. He hasn't revealed anything. He hasn't revealed all of this to us. But what he has revealed to us, that's what we study. That's what we learn. And that's what we go by. But to try to peek behind the veil and pry into the secret things of God, which we'll get into next time, is a sin that God has reserved that knowledge specifically for himself. So how do we make sense of all of this? God is in control of everything we do, which includes every action that we make, and yet we are 100% responsible. And at the same time, what is happening is God is able to work through our will and not against it. To bring about every single thing that he has ordained to take place, and we are freely willing to do the things and the actions that we do, being 100% responsible. Here's another example. Did you choose to come to church this morning? The answer is yes. Were you forced to come to church? No. Did God plan from the foundation of the world that you would be at church this morning? Yes. So what we see here is God working through your will and not against it to bring about his desire. He ordained you to be here and yet you chose to be here. Both are true. Yet if you had chosen to skip church this morning, you were not forced to skip. You made the choice. You're 100% responsible for it, but yet God still brought that about as well. But the sin is at your feet. This is how we can reconcile the differences, the apparent contradiction from our perspective of God's moral will and God's sovereign will. And what about the sinful desires of people? Does God ordain those as well? And the answer is yes. Again, look at the crucifixion the Jews, Pilate, the Romans, everybody involved. They were not forced to do what they did. They did what they did because of the sinful nature of their heart and they were held accountable for it. We have to remember James 1.13 when we're looking at all of the pieces of the puzzle. James 1.13 is kind of like that centerpiece. If you don't have it in the puzzle, it just sticks out. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted 
when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So we're seeing both aspects of God's will here, the moral and the sovereign. The sin is 100% at our feet. God's ways are not our ways. Where people get into trouble is when they compare how God does things to how man does things. And we tend to think people who are against the reformed position of providence and predestination who have problems with these things, the analogy that you'll hear a lot is that God is the puppet master. And all he has to do is pull the strings and we do something. That we're completely helpless and that we're just sitting here on strings and God is the one who's just moving us around and we have no will or volition of our own. And that is not what the Bible teaches. But we run into these types of thinking when we take God's moral will and his sovereign will and try to blend them together. We run into all sorts of problems. This is why we have to stay rooted and we have to stay grounded in the word of God and not to rely on our own understanding on how God can ordain all things that come to pass. We have to stay on scripture. If we get philosophical, if we try to take logic into this and try to take our limited, finite, sinful understanding of how this can be, we're always going to run into problems. We have to allow us to step back and to plant the flag of mystery right here and say we don't know how to do it. And if we try to peek beyond that veil, those are the secret things that God has reserved for himself. We cannot know them, nor are we to try. Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, heaven, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. So this being said, understanding the two dynamics between the will of God, the moral and the sovereign, there's another false assumption we can make regarding the will of God, and it's this. Rather than God ordaining all things that come to pass, God first waits for the human being to act. He can foresee what we're first going to do, what we're going to do first. So he looks down the corridors of time. He sees what we're freely going to do. And then with that knowledge, then what God does is then he ordains what he wants to come to pass. God desires A, but he foresees man's going to do C. So here he ordains it where, okay, God has to settle for B. Man's free will sets the stage. God has to work around it. Is this true? Is this biblical? Does God have a hypothetical will or a possible will or a plan B? Meaning God can only bring about his plan if we respond correctly. And the answer is no. This is false thinking. Let me give you an example here. I don't want to overcomplicate this example, but it, it speaks to this. John thinks that God wanted him to marry Sally. But instead, he marries Jessica. And because John married Jessica, he won't be as happy or blessed because God really wanted him to be with Sally. He chose against God's will. But if he married Sally, he would have been better off. Have any of us ever thought this? Where God wanted me to do this, but I chose to do this. And had I have just chosen what God wanted me to do from the beginning, then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be happy. If I could go back 
turn the hands of time back, and redo something over again, then I know I will be directly in God's will. But somewhere along the line, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago, I stepped out of God's will, and now here I am. I'm outside of God's will, but he's doing the best to bring me back in and back around. Now, because John married Jessica instead of Sally, Jessica's no longer available, but along comes Mark. Mark was supposed to marry Jessica. But John did and said. So now do you see how the whole world becomes unraveled with a hypothetical will? John was supposed to marry Sally, but he married Jessica. Mark was supposed to marry. And now that she's not available, now he has to settle for second best, and the next person has to settle for second best, and nobody's ever really in what God originally intended. Always trying to find out where it is. It's like you're trying to aim for the center of the bullseye, and you can just get as close as you possibly can. But we can't ever quite get to God's will, so we have to settle for a plan B. Do you see why this hypothetical will of God is not biblical? This is not the way God works. If this is the way God worked, by looking down the corridors of time or allowing man's free will to lay the foundation, the universe would become completely chaotic. If God first waited for man to act before he ordained something, the entire world would become unraveled. We would never reach what God wants. Remember the one time I walked into a room and I was a hospital chaplain again and I saw this individual sitting on the side of his bed and he is having anxiety attacks and his face was um, completely pale. He hadn't shaven for a couple days. It didn't look like he's been eating much. And I walk in and I talk to him and he said he believed in God because he saw that I was the chaplain. He says, I be- and he really wanted to talk. He said, I believe in God. But his problem was, God can only do so much. He's only in control so much. The responsibility is on us. And if man doesn't act right, God can only do so much. And this is the topic that was really causing the anxiety. He was in there for health reasons from his anxiety, but there is a deeper issue here, and it was this topic. The fact that God will only do so much If man cooperates, God will bless. If man doesn't cooperate, God can't do anything about the evil in the world. And it was really getting to this guy. If people sinned too much, there was nothing God could do. There was no security. There was no guarantee for the future. God could only do so much. The what-if scenarios were just driving him, drove him right to the hospital. So then I would sit back and I'd say, okay, what about the sovereignty of God? Dealing with man's responsibility. And he would take the hypothetical approach again. He'd say, God can only do so much as man will allow him. God can only react for after we have made our choices. So the emphasis is always on the wrong syllable. He's never correctly understanding divine causality. And he's thinking that our free will is leading the way and that God is following behind is trying to pick up all of the pieces. This is what happens when you develop a biblical understanding of God's hypothetical will or a plan B, that God is not in sovereign control over all things. Do you see the level of doubt, worry, anxiety, frustration that can come by not correctly understanding the will of God? Both aspects, the moral and the sovereign and how they work together. People express this hypothetical will, I said, like aiming for the center of a bullseye. God wanted A, I chose C, 
I ended up with B. The truth is God never settles for plan B. Whatever comes to pass is what God intended to bring about. He works through our wills and through our choices, not against them. The Bible does not teach that God has a hypothetical will. We have never missed what God has intended, and now we have to settle for plan B. But here's the key. When we sin, God works out all things together for the good. And I'm sure most of us are familiar with Romans 8.28. And when we hear Romans 8.28, we always think mostly about the blessings. But Romans 8.28 also applies to our mistakes as well. Saying, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Our mistakes are just as much valid in Romans 8.28 as our blessings are. God only has one plan, plan A. This includes the good things and the bad things that happen to us. The sins of our past make us think we've missed God's best for our lives. They make us believe that we took a wrong turn somewhere. Now we have to settle for second best, and this is not what the Bible teaches. We can always be sure as to what God's will is from the beginning because whatever takes place in our lives is God's will. It is what he has ordained to bring to pass. We're never left in the dark. But we have to be careful on how we understand the dynamics of this. The difficult things in life, the horrific things, the unspeakable things that have happened to us or may have happened to us or that we read about in the news and cause us to scratch our head and think, where is God? These are not random. God is not powerless over this. God is not sitting back thinking, okay, I would do this, but man's free will has done this, therefore I can't. That's not the way it works. God has a plan, and he has a purpose. At the same time, he is not to be blamed for the bad things that happen. The sin that takes place comes from our own human heart. They come to pass because of the sin and the corrupted universe that we live in, because we live in this fallen world. If we had the ability to count the amount of evil actions that the human race had conceived in their heart to do over the past 6,000 years, let's just say we were able to see every sinful act the human race wanted to commit. And then to actually see how many of those sins that were conceived in the human race's heart, how many of them actually came to pass it would be an absolutely small percentage of a number. It's a fractional number. God is withholding back so much evil that I don't think we have the ability to understand how much evil is really in our hearts if God's sovereignty wasn't covering and protecting us as a human race. We would be shocked. God allows some evil to come about for his plans and his purpose. It's never random. It's never arbitrary. He is in complete control because God has a plan for it. 
not a hypothetical will based upon how obedient we are or how well we can keep our chin above the bar. Yes, we are to obey God's moral will at all times. Yes, there are consequences for sinning. But behind it all, God is working out his sovereign will, a will that can never be defeated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the clarity that it has in speaking into your one will and the two aspects of it. Lord, these can be very difficult concepts to understand. But Lord, they're very important to understand your sovereign hand and your sovereign control over all things. And yet at the same time, Lord, we're free to make our choices and we're completely responsible for what we do. Lord, let us hold fast to your moral will. Let us focus there on your Ten Commandments, on your law, on your moral character. Lord, to empty ourselves of all of our sin, all of our pride, all of our lust, and all of our struggles. Lord, that the deceitfulness of sin does not come in thinking that there's pleasure in breaking your moral will, but rather true freedom and true peace is in following what you have prescribed for us. And the secret will, Lord, let us have faith that you're bringing it about exactly how you had ordained and that everything we experience has a plan and a purpose and Romans 8.28 applies for the sins of our past as well, that we haven't missed the boat, that we're not in plan B, but that we're in plan A every step of the way. So thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy. In your son's name we pray, amen.